We will get into our passage this morning. Father, thank you for your mercy and grace that we know so beautifully and gloriously and experientially in your Son, Jesus Christ, by faith, by the very empowerment of the Spirit of Christ. And Lord, we pray today that our faith would be strengthened in his, his person, his work, his beauty, his glory. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Friday was the 34th anniversary, down to the day, August the 23rd, 1985, the 34th anniversary of the opening day of my senior football season. And it was a tradition at our high school, as it is in most high schools, that you would wear your jersey on game day. And so every Friday of football season, I would put on that number 52 jersey. Well, you can imagine how beautifully strange it was when Friday morning I awoke and I saw my son Nate on opening day of football season with his Eastern High School 52 jersey. And I told him when I saw him that it was a deja vu moment, if there ever was one. They tell me he looks like me. <laughs> well, according to the American Heritage Dictionary, the deja vu is an impression of having seen or experienced something before. It's a French term, and it literally means already seen. Deja vu, already seen. Humorously, that term was made famous in the sports world when Yogi Berra, after seeing his teammates, Mickey Mantle and Roger Maris, hit back-to-back -back home runs, he famously said, it was like deja vu all over again. Sometimes in Scripture, you, you see what appears to feel and be those deja vu moments. We see it in the Gospels. For instance, in Mark chapter 6, Jesus feeds the 5,000. The disciples, being slow to believe, slow to understand, have no understanding of how he could do that. Two chapters later, Mark 8, he feeds the 4,000. Again, the disciples are slow to understand, slow to believe. Of course, the second incident in that gospel of the feeding of the multitudes takes on added significance precisely because it wasn't the first time that Jesus had done that. Well, we see something similar in chapter 26. In chapter 24, we saw David was at the, the cave at Engedi. And what you have there is he has but does not take the opportunity to put an end to his misery. That misery being the person of King Saul. We see the same thing happen today in chapter 26. And as with Mark's account of the feeding of the thousands, the second time this happens takes on added significance precisely because it's the second time 
we see this happen. And that brings us to the setting for the passage in the first five verses. Look with me in verse 1. Then the Ziphites came to Saul at Gibeah, saying, Is not David hiding himself on the hill of Hekilah, which is on the east of Jeshimon? Now, if you've been with us, you remember these Ziphites. They were already mentioned in chapter 23, starting in verse 19. They were the ones that originally betrayed David to Saul. And if it wasn't for the Philistines providentially entering the land, Saul would have probably killed David at that time. But his attention was diverted. So this is a deja vu all over again, if you will. But there is one major difference between what we see here and what we see in chapter 24. And the first time in Gedi, there was this emotional, heartfelt conversation between David and Saul, where Saul, for the first time, acknowledges his sin against David and for the first time confesses that David indeed would be the king of Israel. So when the Ziphites come to Saul this time, you would expect Saul to ignore them. But you would be wrong. Notice with me in verse 2. So Saul arose and went down to the wilderness of Ziph with 3,000 chosen men of Israel to seek David in the wilderness of Ziph. Now, what explains Saul's response here after his interaction with David in chapter 24 where it appears that he's softened? Well, it's simple. In chapter 24, David, or Saul rather, did not have godly sorrow. It was worldly sorrow. Worldly sorrow is the kind of sorrow that you have because you don't like what your actions have done in the sense of the consequences. You don't like how your actions have made you feel, how your actions have made you look. But it never leads to repentance, even though it may appear to look like repentance at the moment. But now that the emotions that we see in chapter 24 from Saul have died down, he's back to being Saul. The real self is exposed not when things are going your way. When things are going your way, even the most ardent pagan can appear compliable and happy and joyful, sociable. But when the temptations come and the tests come, your real self gets exposed. And man in sin, now what do I mean by man in sin? A man who has never trusted in God's provision for sin, an unregenerate man, 
man in sin, man under the dominion of sin, is ever ready to commit sins, plural, when given the right occasion. Without a circumcised heart, and that's the language the, the Old Testament uses, we know it as the regenerate heart, the, the, the heart that has experienced the new birth, without a circumcised heart, one simply does not change. That person may turn over a new leaf, but all it is is a polishing of the outside while the inside remains corrupt. And as we get older, what you have always been, you will become even more. We become more of what we already are as we get older. The sin nature for the unrepentant is not tamed as they get older. In fact, the filters that keep us from expressing the fullness of our depravity wear down as we get older. In what you have been your entire life, you now are expressing oftentimes without a filter. And think about this. Didn't Saul already confess that he knew David was going to be king? Didn't he know that ultimately that there was nothing he could do to David? Yes. But sin is irrational. Sin is irrational. I was talking to Joe Humphrey about Craig's company, Hands-On Original where there's a group trying to take away our religious liberties. And what's insane about this is the American experiment was largely built on that very notion. Religious liberty. Religious freedom. But sin is irrational. And it makes the unrepentant sinner irrational. Look with me in verse 3. And Saul encamped on the hill of Hekilah, which is beside the road on the east of Jeshimon. But David remained in the wilderness. When he saw that Saul came after him into the wilderness, David sent out spies and learned that Saul had indeed come. Then David rose and came to the place where Saul had encamped. And David saw the place where Saul lay, with Abner the son of Ner, the commander of his army. Saul was lying within the encampment, while the army was encamped around him. So David sent out spies. He's received the intel. It's confirmed that Saul indeed is coming after him. He has Abner, who incidentally is Saul's uncle, likely older than Saul, the commander, his ever loyal commander of his army there. And that brings us really to the first scene. And the first scene in this passage is with David and Abishai who incidentally is David's nephew. Look with me in verse 6. Then David said to Halimelech the Hittite, that is not to be 
confused with the priest at Nob. This is a foreigner who's, who has attached himself to the anointed one. Beautiful imagery there. But it's the only other place we're going to read about it. And to Joab's brother, Abishai, the son of Zeruah, who will go down with me into the camp to Saul? And Abishai said, I will go down with you. I have to admit that Abishai is one of my favorite characters in the entire Bible. He's not without his faults. We'll read that later, especially in 2 Samuel. He, he tends to be quick to pull the trigger. Let's just say that. But he is massively loyal to David. And he's a warrior. I love Abishai. 2 Samuel 23, verse 18 will tell us that he was one of David's 30 most heroic men and he was the chief of the 30. So you know David had some mighty men he was the chief of the 30. does say he does not attain to the three, the three that are most closest to David. Why? He seemed to have a short temper. He, he seemed to have a quick trigger finger. That was a Abishai. But in that same text, it says he single-handedly slayed 300 with his spear. He's much a man. He was also David's nephew, one of three brothers, Joab being one. And these three brothers were the sons of David's sister, all right, Zeruah. All right, so Abishai, he, he says, I'm ready to go. He tells David he's willing to go with him on this dangerous mission and as we will see, Abishai evidently thought that they would form, he and David, a two-man hit squad. Verse 7. So David and Abishai went to the army by night. I mean, they are going into an army, an enemy camp, with the king of Israel and 3,000 the best warriors in Israel. Just two men. And there lay Saul sleeping within the encampment with his spear stuck in the ground at his head and Abner and the army lay around him. Now this is the first time of six times that we're going to see that word spear in this chapter. But David was very familiar with that spear. It had zoomed past his head three times in the past. And Abishai was evidently familiar with that as well. Hence, notice in verse 8. Then Abishai said to David, God has given your enemy into your hand this day. Now, please, let me pin him to the earth with one stroke of the spear, and I will not strike him twice. He's not saying I won't be overly brutal. He's saying it won't take but one. 
I'll get him the first time. That's Abishai. But Abishai embodies the natural instinct that many of us have experienced. Someone has hurt you or someone has hurt someone you love. And our tendency is one to hurt back. All right? It's the anti-golden rule. Do unto others as they have done unto you. So we recognize, and I don't like this sinister emotion when I read this and smile at his zeal. Because it is not the way of the kingdom of God. It causes damage. We've seen that vengeance is the Lord's. Retribution is God's work. It's not our work. Retribution requires guilt, proportionality, and equity. And all three are compromised when we play the way or the role of the vigilante. But this is another deja vu moment in chapter 26 because these are the very words are similar words that David's men had said to him back in chapter 24, verse 4. However, there's one difference. In the cave back at En Gedi, David had spared Saul's life with the effect that Saul softened towards David. And now David knows Saul will never change. He will never change. So maybe this time the temptation would have been stronger for David to put an end to Saul once for all. But since then, David had met a woman named Abigail. And Abigail had reminded him of the promises of God, of the gospel of God, that there's, coming king, there's a kingdom coming where God will rule through David. The reign of God will be expressed through David. And so God would take care of David's enemies. David didn't have to play that role. He didn't have to save himself as the language of 1 Samuel 25 tells us. So note in verse 9. David said to Abishai, Do not destroy him, for who can put out his hand against the Lord's anointed and be guiltless? Now, verses 9 to 11, we're going to see the name Lord five times. So I want you to note that, and then I'll make my point. And David said, As the Lord lives, the Lord will strike him, or his day will come to die. The Lord can strike him down immediately, like he did with Nabal. Or he could just die of old age. His day will come to die. I don't know what the Lord's going to do. It's what David is saying. Or he will go down into battle and perish. The Lord forbid that I should put out my hand against the Lord's anointed. 
Five times we see the name, the Lord, here. What is the point? The way to restrain our evil desires is to, as we sang this morning, behold our God. Is to be centered on our Lord, our God. And the name Lord carries with it a lot of information. It's not just something that denotes Him. In our culture, our names tend to be denotative. I was named Brian Keith in part because my dad's name Keith, but in part because my mother loved the show Family Affair. There was a man in it named Brian Keith. <laughs> Doesn't say a whole lot about who I am. Nicknames today tend to be more connotative. They, they connote something about the person. Like my hero, Bear Bryant. His nickname was Bear because when he was a teenager at a, at a carnival, he wrestled a bear and whipped it. He earned the nickname Bear. That nickname connoted something who he is. So when we read the name Lord, it's not just designating who God is. It's telling us what kind of God he is. He is a God who is sovereign. He is a God who is authoritative. A God who is covenantally present with his people. God who is infinite, eternal, and unchangeable in his being, his wisdom, his power, his holiness, his goodness, his justice, and his truth. That's the kind of God that David was centered upon. So when we are struggling with these vindictive feelings or struggling with other kind of issues what does David teach us to do he teaches us to behold our God and David did not know what the Lord was going to do he said he may die just of old age he may die you know in battle don't know what he's going to do that was beyond David's pay grade and trust me if it was beyond David's pay grade it's beyond our pay grade but trusting in the Lord meant that God's promises would come in God's time, in God's way, not David's time, in David's way. In the situation with Nabal, the Lord had just struck down Nabal. And here the same word is used, it's, it's interesting. The Lord will strike. Perhaps the Lord will strike Saul. Same word. David has learned and is learning that the Lord can be trusted to handle David's affairs, his circumstances. David didn't know how God's providence would work in this situation, but he did know he was not called to figure out God's providence. He was called to be obedient to what God had already revealed. Obedience to what God had revealed to David. Obedience to what God has revealed to us by His Word is more important to us than trying to figure out how God's providential plan will unfold in any particular situation. David teaches us that here. That's all we need to know at this moment is how to be obedient today and trust God will unfold His plan and that plan is birthed by infinite wisdom. And this is a deja vu moment again of David's patience and David's restraint with Saul. But now it's even deeper since Abigail. 
David had learned through the precepts of God's Word. He had learned through providence, and he had learned through the people of God, people like Abigail, that if God intends him to be king, and Saul is an obstacle to that with his venom, his hatred, his evil, then God would take care of Saul. It's a wonderful example to us. And yet, even in view of David's understanding of sovereignty and the fact that God would bring vindication and retribution, that did not in any way undermine David's human responsibility. We see it in the second part of verse 11. It says, But take now the spear that is at his head and the jar of water and let us go. And so David took the spear and the jar of water from Saul's head, and they went away. No man saw it or knew it, nor did any awake, for they were all asleep, because a deep sleep from the Lord had fallen upon them. We see that language three times in the Old Testament. The first time with Adam. A deep sleep from the Lord. Now, Abishai likely envisioned that they would come to the camp and plunder that camp. And David is saying the only plunder we're going to take out of here is a spear and a canteen, a water jug. And I can hear Abishai saying, you mean I'm, I was willing to risk my life for water and a spear? But David has been encouraged by the promises. Remember, chapter 25 precedes chapter 26. And those glorious kingdom promises that Abigail had rehearsed to him, and those kingdom promises are absolutely related to our gospel. In fact, it's the same gospel, just in full form. Glorious kingdom promises. Not that we're going to be kings like David, but we're going to benefit from the kingdom ruled by the one that comes after David. Jesus Christ, the son of David. He didn't know how God was going to do it, but David knew he would. And here we see how David, uh, God would do it in this particular instance. A deep sleep fell on the entire camp. A deep sleep. Isn't that beautiful? I don't think there's any way David could have predicted that. It wouldn't have crossed his mind. That's how God's going to do it. God has a way of surprising us, doesn't he? But his providence is always birthed by his goodness, by his wisdom, and by his promises. If God is for us, nothing else matters. It's essentially what Paul says in Romans 8. That changes the scene here. We've seen David and Abishai. Now we're going to see David and Abner in verses 13 to 16. Then David went over to the other side and stood far off on the top of the hill with a great space between them. And David called to the army and to Abner, the son of Ner, saying, Will you not answer, Abner? Then Abner answered, Who are you who calls to the king? And David said to Abner, Are you not a man 
Who is like you in Israel? Why then have you not kept watch over your Lord the king? For one of the people came in to destroy the king your Lord. This thing that you have done is not good. As the Lord lives, you deserve to die because you have not kept watch over your Lord. The Lord's anointed. And now see where the king's spear is in the jar of water that was at his head. That seems to be the significance of why David took the spear in the jar. He was proving that he had been in the camp. Those things had been by Saul's head, and now they were in David's hands. Abner was a loyal servant. He had been with Saul from the very beginning. Chapter 14, again, I said he was Saul's uncle. And David says to Saul's uncle, David's and Saul's commander of his army, Abner, you deserve to die. And David is essentially pointing out that it was David who had saved, ironically, Saul's life on that day. Someone had come into the camp to kill Saul, Abishai. And David, rather than Abner, had been the one to save Saul from his zealous nephew. This is what I would call heroic audacity. And we find heroic audacity quite appealing, don't we? It's beautiful. We resonate with it. Outside of Scripture is one of my perhaps favorite stories that kind of drive home the notion of this kind of audacity occurred actually in the state of Kentucky. It was in the Civil War, the Battle of Perryville. And there was this Confederate general named Leonidas Polk. And his men, he and his men were in a bad way. They were being fired on by another regiment. And he believed that it was friendly fire. He believed it was some unwitting Confederates. And so he rides around and comes to the commander of this regiment that's firing upon his men. And he says, he says, stop firing at once. And then he has this commander identify himself. And the man said that he was the commander of the Indiana Regiment. Polk had misidentified this group. They were actually a union, federal soldiers. And then that man asked him, identify yourself. Fortunately, it was twilight, and he had on a, a dark cloak. Well, at that point, he decided to be audacious. He decided immediately that he was going to bluff. And so he, he rode up on his horse face to face with this Indiana colonel. And he shook his fist in his hand, face and he said, I'll show you who I am, sir. Stop firing at once. And then he turned his horse and trotted slowly down the Union line, calling every soldier to cease firing, to put down their arms. And then he slowly 
walked his horse to the tree line, and then took off. <laughs> That's audacious. David's was more so. Here, there is no bluff. David is on the offensive. And that changes, brings us to a change in scene. David and Saul closes out this passage. Notice in verse 17. Saul recognized David's voice and said, Is this your voice, my son David? And David said, It is my voice, my lord, O king. This is deja vu all over again. Saul's question is the exact question he had asked David at the cave and in Gedi, in chapter 24, verse 16, verse 18, and he said, Why does my Lord pursue after his servant? For what have I done? What evil is on my hands? Now, therefore, let my Lord, the king, hear the words of his servant. If it is the Lord who has stirred you up against me, may he accept an offering. But if it is men, may they be cursed before the Lord. For they have driven me out this day, that I should have no share in the heritage of the Lord, saying, Go serve other gods. Now, therefore, let not my blood fall to the earth away from the presence of the Lord. For the king of Israel has come out to seek a single flea, like one who hunts a partridge in the mountains." Now, this reflects the theology of geography under the Old Covenant. Part of Israel's great inheritance under the Old Covenant was worship through the priest and the prophets. In Psalm 84, for instance, How lovely is your dwelling place, O Lord of hosts! My soul longs, yes, faints, for the courts of the Lord. Indeed, the Lord's presence was specially seen in the sanctuary, David writes in Psalm 63, So I have looked upon you in the sanctuary, beholding your power and your glory. Of course, we know the sanctuary, God is omnipresent. But the sanctuary, there was a special revelatory presence, the Shekinah presence of God in the sanctuary. And David had been driven away by Saul's antics from the tabernacle, from the sacrifices, from the priest, from the festivals. And to be cut off from corporate worship was David's greatest grief, his deepest grief. And being deprived of an opportunity to worship at the temple was equivalent, he says, to going and serving other gods. In a day when it seems that corporate worship is just one of many options for many professing believers. I wonder how many of us could say that would be our deepest grief, to be cut off from corporate worship. For David, that's to be exiled into a world of false religion and paganism. It's a very insightful text here for us. Many of us schedule church around our other activities rather than church being our schedule. 
Corporate worship is vital for the people of God. It's a means of grace. Let me just tell you this. If I couldn't go to church, I would apostatize. I'm absolutely convinced of that. Why would I say that? Hebrews 10 tells me that. If I forsake the assembling of the saints, I will not persevere in the faith. That does not mean I could lose my salvation. These warnings are means of grace for God's people. And I heed the warnings because that's the evidence that I'm a saint. I'm a believer. David's greatest grief is that he was cut off from corporate worship. It wasn't that he was living in a cave. It wasn't that the most powerful man in the world wanted to kill him. His greatest grief is he could not behold God in the sanctuary. And as David understood things, there were two likely sources for Saul's insanity. The first was God himself. Now, what what does that mean? In particular, God's judgment on Saul's sins, which was reflecting itself in Saul's impaired reason. When we persist in our sin, God will just give you over sometimes. David said that could be the part of the problem. In that case, he says, God has provided a way of cleansing and restoration. He says, it is the, if it is the Lord who has stirred you up against me, may he accept an offering. Isn't that beautiful? David says there's a means of averting God's justice on your unrepentant sin. It's in the blood sacrifices of atonement. Or, he says, another possible source for your impaired reason is wicked men. Reminds us of the effect that others have on us. People speak ill words to a person about another person. It can have a devastating effect on your perception of that person. And he says, if it's them, may the curse of God fall on them. Why would he say that? David is the anointed. And so to to be in rebellion, to hate the anointed one, is literally an act of the Antichrist. It's Antichrist behavior and worthy of judgment. Now, at this point, Saul seems to be softened by David's mercy to him, his admonition to him. Notice with me in verse 21. Then David said, or Saul said, I have sinned. Return, my son David, for I will no more do you harm because my life was precious in your eyes this day. Behold, I have acted foolishly and have made a great mistake. Deja vu, chapter 24. Anyone who has ever been in an abusive relationship. Like David has been here with Saul, will be the first to tell you that similar scenes are replayed over and over again. It may be an abusive friendship. Oftentimes it's an abusive marriage. And so though David could not see 
Saul's heart, there had been years of mental and spiritual instability. In many professions of fall repentance. Superficial repentance. Only to be followed quickly by rage and murderous intentions. This is the pattern of abusive relationships. Notice in verse 22. And David answered and said, Here is the spear, O king. Let one of the young men come over and take it. The Lord rewards every man for his righteousness and his faithfulness. For the Lord gave you into my hand today. And I would not put out my hand against the Lord's anointed. Behold, as your life was precious this day in my sight, so may my life be precious in the sight of the Lord. And may he deliver me out of all tribulation. Then Saul said to David, Blessed be you, my son David. You will do many things and will succeed in them. So David went his way and Saul returned to his place. Here we have the last words David ever says to Saul. And these are the last words that Saul will ever say to David. And David's words could be summed up in two words. Righteousness and faithfulness. The Lord rewards every man for his righteousness and his faithfulness. These two words are fundamental to God, to his character, his person, and his kingdom. As we read this morning in Psalm 85, steadfast love and faithfulness meet. Righteousness and peace kiss each other. Faithfulness springs up from the ground and righteousness looks down from the sky. Glorious language. This means that God's king must be righteous and faithful. And that would be the earmark of David's reign. In fact, Saul's final words to David here are related to this. Saul's words here are kind of a compulsory acknowledgement of the blessing of God on David's life. And as a result, he's going to do many things and succeed in them. In other words, the Lord will reward David for his righteousness and his faithfulness. But here's the problem with David's reign. The time would come when David's righteousness and his faithfulness would fail. We've already seen cracks in the armor. At this point, he's a polygamist. He's already compromising the ideal of marriage from Genesis 2.24. And that's the bad news. Indeed, it is really bad news for Israel. It is bad news for the world. Because Israel and the world's hopes depend on a king who is fundamentally... Perfectly righteous and faithful. And that's why Solomon in that beautiful psalm where he, he, he cries for the day when the reign of God's king 
will, will cover the earth as the waters cover the sea. Psalm 72, which is certainly speaking of a, of a king greater than Solomon. He begins that psalm with these words. Psalm 72, verse 1. Give the king your justice, O God, and your righteousness to the royal son. Solomon recognized that the kind of king the world needs is one that is more righteous than him, more faithful than him. But here's the good news. As we read from Psalm 85, faithfulness springs up from the ground and, and righteousness looks down from the sky. Verse 11, the very next verse, verse 12 says, the Lord will give what is good. The Lord will give what is good. Verse 13, righteousness will go before him and make his footsteps away. Isn't that beautiful? God will provide this, this person, this king. And that way is a king better than David. In fact, Peter, in his glorious sermon in Acts chapter 3, verse 14, Jesus Christ is the righteous one. Paul later in 2 Thessalonians 3, verse 3, will call him the faithful one. And herein lies both the question and the answer to the entire narrative that began in chapter 24 and is extended all the way through chapter 26. And it's this. How can God repay evil and free us from the responsibility of repaying evil when we are sinned against. When, if we're honest, at the same time, he not judge us, who are clearly not naturally righteous and faithful. That's the question that has to cross every mind. God promises vindication. He promises retribution so that we don't have to repay evil for evil. But how can he do that? And at the same time, us who recognize that we are not as righteous as God, that we don't conform to his law, how can we avert that justice, that judgment? And the answer, and this is a deja vu for you, week in and week out, because you never get past it is the gospel, the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. In 1 Peter 3, it says, Christ suffered once, once for sins, get this, the righteous for the unrighteous. Who are the unrighteous? You and I. You and I who are not righteous, you and I who are not faithful, the righteous one suffered for the unrighteous that he might bring us to God, that he might reconcile us to the God that we've rebelled against, being put to death in the flesh and made alive in the Spirit. Crucifixion, resurrection for us and our salvation. And that's why we never assume or ignore the gospel in any sermon. It's the most necessary deja vu in the history of the world for the people of God.
And for those of you that have never trusted in Christ, it can become your gospel too. But you have to humble yourself. You have to confess before God and in time before men. I'm a sinner and I deserve judgment. And yet that judgment has fallen on another for me in the Son. And I'm going to repent of my sins and I'm going to trust in Him so that my sins can be forgiven, so that I can have a righteousness that's alien to me, credited to me, so that I can stand before this righteous and this faithful God. The Bible says if you will do that, your sins will be forgiven. You will experience and have eternal life. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the gospel, the glorious deja vu for every believer. We wake up every day preaching that gospel to ourselves. And we pray that gospel would continue to inform our affections, inform our hearts, our actions, our words, the way we respond to our enemies, the way we respond to people who slight us. Lord, thank you for the example of David. But thank you for the salvation of the greater David, our Lord Jesus. And Lord, if there's any here today that have never trusted in Christ, Lord, I pray they would feel compelled to come speak to me. Whether during the closing song or after the service, I pray that they would make a beeline to me so that they could come to terms with their salvation by this gospel. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. As we stand